good morning. So my stomach is already ready growling. I don't, I don't know. We're, you know, this, every time there's a season, I'm like, there's a time to eat, you know, <laughs> and that time is about upon us. Um, we're going to have a good time today. Before that, though, we have to work through Ecclesiastes. So grab your Bible. If you didn't bring one, there are several um, pew Bibles in the back corner. Also a couple giant print ones if, if you need that as well. Um, grab your Bible. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes, and we have endeavored to finish Ecclesiastes before the end of the year, which means in a few of these passages, we're going to be making some uh, large sections all at once, taking some giant leap for mankind sort of scenarios, and today is one of those days. So we're going to cover chapter 3 and 4 today, and now I know that sounds terrifying because, you know, lunch is waiting out there, and you don't want to be in here forever. But however, part of this is so depressing, we're going to work through it very fast. So, because otherwise, then we'll just be too sad to eat, and we need to get to the happy part um, instead. So, grab your Bible, open to Ecclesiastes. We're going to do three and four, but for the sake of the way I'm going to kind of put the, the ideas together, we're actually going to start in chapter four and then come back and do chapter three. I hope that will make sense, kind of why we did that as we get to the end. Um, but we're going to start with the really depressing part, and then work through the not as depressing part, because after all, this is the book of Ecclesiastes, and when you think of the book of Ecclesiastes, what word, if you've read the book, what word comes to your mind first? Vanity, yes. Not vanity as in you look in the mirror and, oh, you're so vain. Vanity in the waste of my time, meaningless, why are we here, this is pointless, what are we doing? Kind of the same way I felt in a lot of my classes in school. If you ever have a, a substitute teacher comes in and they give you a bunch of busy work, does that ever happen to you? And you're sitting there and you're having to do these worksheets and you know they're going to throw them away. They're not even going to read. They're going to check this. I'm not going to learn anything. This is absolute vanity of vanities. All right, we're going to really dive into the heart of that idea in the text this morning. So let's just quick recap what's going on in Ecclesiastes so far. And Ecclesiastes, it's one of those terms, you never say the word Ecclesiastes outside of the church. Have you ever said the word Ecclesiastes when you weren't referencing this book? And the answer is no, because we do not use this word at all. Technically, the word just means something to the effect of preacher. You get an assembly together and somebody stands at the front and does the talking, then they're the Ecclesiastes in the room. In the Hebrew, if you've probably heard this, if you've, if you've done any homework on this at all, the Koheleth, um, that's the Hebrew term, and it means the same thing. It's just the guy at the front of the room doing the talking. And in the context of Ecclesiastes, the idea is, so I've thought this through, the probably Solomon is saying, let's gather up, let me teach you some wisdom. So here's the idea in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's kind of the other side of the coin to life. You read the book of Proverbs, and we love Proverbs because Proverbs can be very mechanical. You live this way, it's wise, you will be blessed. You, you live this way, it's fruitful, it'll work out for you. If you eat right every day, we, we use the same thing in our, our lingo, you eat right every day, you'll live longer. If you work out every day, you'll be healthier. If you do this in your relationships, things go smoother. We have these pragmatic systems that we can look at in life and say, yeah, if I, if I live this way, if I make these financial decisions It'll work out well for me. There's a, a pragmatic wisdom in life. And when we think about wisdom, we even kind of define it that way, that wisdom is knowing where a given path leads and choosing the path that gets you 
to the proper destination. I know if I do these actions, I'll end up where I want to go. But Ecclesiastes is the other side of that coin that says wisdom also has to deal with the fact that you can make A, B, C, D right decisions, and all of a sudden Z shows up out of nowhere, and everything just gets destroyed. It's like building a sandcastle. I loved doing it as a kid. As an adult, it just feels meaningless, and it feels pointless. Or even building a Lego creation now sounds fun, but I know the kids are going to kick it when I'm finished, and it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be messed up, or like the greenhouse I built at the beginning of the year, and Anna planted all the plants, in, and the sheep come in, the goats rather, bust through the plastic, and eat the entire greenhouse. Like you can make a series of positive steps and these motions and then tragedy still strikes. Sorrow still happens. Maybe you you build up wealth or you have this fancy thing you're so proud that you own and it burns up or gets stolen or you make some error and it breaks or it was a lemon. You know what I'm talking about? There's these, we make lots of positive pragmatic decisions, but sometimes life gives you lemons is the idea. We, we know this. This is part of culture. We recognize that oftentimes, even if I do it right, the world responds wrong. You ever done something in a relationship? You, you had good intentions, and you did something to make someone happy, yet it offended them. They took it wrong. They heard it wrong. It's like, well, it was an honest mistake, but it still had negative consequences. And so Ecclesiastes is that book in the Bible that gives us the other side of this from a both localized level and from a more global level. What's going on in the world that God operates, that God is governing where this thing could be this way? And so we've gotten a lot of vanity of vanities. Life is vain. You can work real hard, you build up your possessions, and then you leave them over to your children who may squander them in one generation. You don't know what's going to happen. There's this uncertainty to life. It may not work out the way you want. So we see a lot of things in Ecclesiastes that if we just read them by themselves would be very depressing. And the hope is not there. Now, Ecclesiastes isn't written to make you depressed. It's written to identify with the depression you probably already have. Anybody ever been depressed about any scenario in your life ever? If you haven't, I'm amazed. All right. But most of us go through seasons and some of us more often than not, have, have cycles of depression, anxiety. We see the world. We recognize how broken it is. We see that no matter how hard we trust, like sometimes there's this thick cloud of darkness laying over the top, and we just can't see the light of day. And the book of Ecclesiastes isn't designed to hold you there. It's designed to say, hey, yeah, that, that happens. I know what that feels like. I've been there. The wisest man ever lived writing this book saying, yeah, that's what that feels like. This, this is a legitimate way to look at the world and see this and feel this, but let me show you the answer. I've considered all of this. I've thought it through. I've lived it. I've tested myself with pleasure. If you remember last week's sermon, chapter 2, he's like, I I tried everything. Let's do pleasure in moderation. Let's do everything with this just proper amount and see if that's the road to happiness. No, not quite. Let's, Let's try. Let's just indulge in whatever. Let's work. Let's build up. Let's do progress. And no matter what we do, there's always this this sense in which it's not working out, and Solomon's reaching the end and saying, there, there's a worldview, though, that makes sense of this. There's a worldview that can look at all of this and still have hope and still have meaning and, in spite of all the vanity, still find joy. And so hopefully, as we leave Ecclesiastes, you know, it seems odd, we're diving into Ecclesiastes in the, the holiday season, which, anybody got a Christmas tree up yet? 
oh, come on, really? No, 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 it's too early, too early. No, I feel like once you get to Thanksgiving, until the new year comes, this is just, it's not a holiday, it's just a whole season of holiday, joy, Thanksgiving, Christmas, celebration, and here we are doing Ecclesiastes, depression, vanity, life is not worth it, the American dream is not going to be all you hoped it was. The point is that actually, in spite of all this, we can still find joy. We can still find meaning. We can still have a useful view of all of this stuff, good or bad. Whether you, wherever you are on the roller coaster, there's some joy that can be found. And So my hope is as we dive into Ecclesiastes, as we kind of acknowledge the depression, we can pump, come back from that with a healthy worldview, seeing how God is working in each of these seasons. So with that in mind, let's start in the, the harsher part of these two chapters, Ecclesiastes Chapter 4, we're going to go through all of this kind of this part kind of quickly, and we'll dive in a little more in depth in chapter 3. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. Again, so not the first time. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. So a lot of what he's discussed so far has had to do with just the fruit of his own labor. Now he's looking out at the other parts of the world, other people, and the way things are going on, and he sees there's oppressions that are done under the sun, there's people being taken advantage of. It says, behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Now, we can acknowledge this. A lot of people in our culture would, would love to meditate on these verses, and, and this is one of the only things they can see in life. But the reality is, is this still happens. It's always happened. We look all over the world. We can see that there are people who are oppressed, there's no one to comfort them, and the oppressors have power, and nothing can be done about it. And Solomon's looking at it, the Koheleth is looking at it and saying, this is, this is depressing. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. I just hear the, the weight of that comment. It's, it's more fortunate to just already be dead than to have to stay here and put up with this. Well, I mean, plenty of people have had this exact same thought, but then he takes it another level. Verse 3, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. Well, that sounds really depressing and really bold to say. It'd just be, In fact, the best position would not just to be dead, but to, to have never have been. Because then if if you'd never had been, if you didn't exist at all, then you wouldn't have experienced this evil. Now, we have an an expression in our culture, it's better to love and lost than to have never loved at all. This is the opposite of that. And you see this expressed sometimes in storytelling that, is it really better to have experienced the loss? Is it really better to have experienced the pain and the end and the pain? And he's saying here that perhaps the guy who's best off is the guy who just doesn't exist at all then he's got none of the suffering, none of the pain, none of the sorrow. In fact, in the book of Job, this is exactly what Job says. And everybody remembers Job for the, if you've been in here on Wednesday nights, you, you know there's more to the story. But everybody remember Job for losing everything and then saying, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we look at this guy and we don't relate. Um, but if you read one more chapter in the book of Job, you will totally relate because a few weeks later he says, cursed be the day that I was born. That my mother's womb let me out. 
And he even asked that question, why would God let me even exist if this is what was his plan for me? Like, it had been better off if I had never been. Now, maybe you're not that far down in your depression, but you can see the rationale, what it would take to get someone there. Maybe you've seen someone else ask this question, or maybe you're on a trajectory in your scenario that, that feels like this. Solomon's totally connecting with that. He's going to transition some. He doesn't answer the question yet. He's still just kind of acknowledging all these bleak realities. Then I saw, verse 4, all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, we have an expression for this attitude as well. Keeping up with the... Exactly. Is, Is that why you're working so hard? Is that why you need the new car? Is that why you need the better house? Is that... And the reality is, in American culture, often that's exactly the answer. We're just trying to keep up. We're trying to maintain an image. And Solomon's saying so many people are working hard for no fruitful reason at all. There's just a vanity to this. It's chasing after the wind. And then some of these are just rapid fire. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. It's like, Solomon, calm down, man. That one's pretty bad. But can you envision people in your life who have, it seems like they're so foolish in their actions that when it fits this category, they're they're making decisions so dumb, repetitively, so ridiculous that it's, you know, this hyperbole works for them. They're just folding their hands and chewing on that for, for lunch. It's kind of a gross metaphor, sure, but it's a reality that we often see. We see people living in constant destruction of their own body, their own flesh. And in our day, often this takes the form of addiction. There's some kind of loss of control. They're just doing obviously dumb, evil, wicked things, and it's not working out for them. In verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Have you ever had that moment, it's just quiet for a second, and it's like, when was the last time that happened? There's peacefulness. It's like when all the kids in my house go to bed, and it's just quiet in the house. It's like, man, this is nice. But really what Solomon's saying there, it's like, that's kind of what it feels like to be dead. Oh, that's so nice. It doesn't feel as satisfying when you say it that way. <laughs> but that's what's going on. It's just all of this is vanity. You see why we're starting with the bad news? Because we don't, don't want to end on this note. All right, let's keep going. Verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This person that's got nobody building up the storehouse, don't even have anybody to leave it to. You're not taking it with you. You see this vanity. Again, he's just seeing all of these different scenarios. And uh, uh, nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. At least this is kind of positive. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone... Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, 
oddly enough, this is the most positive thing we've had so far. At least if you're alone, there's some hope. But let's see where he goes with this. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. Now, do you see the, the paradigm? We've got this poor but wise young person. We have this old, foolish, top-of-the-hierarchy king who long, no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. Now, think about that. This is perfect for American culture. What's this person done? They started, we have an expression, from rags to riches. Started at the very bottom and worked their way up to the top. I mean, this is the classic American dream story. Our, our country's built on the idea that this is possible, that this isn't a rarity, that people can actually have this sort of social mobility. He goes from that to the top. I saw all the living who move under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Well, this one sounds positive. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. We're going to see, he's going to work this out in coming chapters, but that king who goes from nothing, the poor to the king, where's he end up? Dead and unremembered. We know so few people from history. We look at life, we see all these scenarios, and this is just one Solomon is pointing out, but you can point out plenty of your own life, plenty of scenarios where you've, you've worked hard and not seen good fruit, or you've gotten good fruit and it wasn't worth it in the end, or you, that classic proverbial Christmas morning, everyone is happy, opens presents, and then when the adrenaline wears out, it's like, man, okay, it's a year before we get to do that again. There's a, you felt that in life in some way. Mar- marriage does this all the time. Young people get married, and young people are the hardest people to counsel and, and marriage advice. I don't know if you've no, noticed this, but they get married, and they're both perfect. Now, that was probably you, too. It was us. I know we did the same thing. And then you, you eventually get married. We call that what stage? Honeymoon stage. How long does the honeymoon stage last? <laughs> Two or three days? Wow, Dwayne, sorry. Where are you? <laughs> I got at least a year, I think, you know, maybe. Some people get more. Um, but you... Come to this point where you realize it's just not as amazing as you expected it to be. Even these good, glorious things. That's why the, the chick flicks only make it to the wedding ceremony. And then they lived happily ever after. And the skeptic in the room is saying, I doubt it. No, they didn't. You know, there, there's something else after this story. There's always drama. We can, we, we're smart enough to realize this. Now, with that in mind, now let's dive into chapter 3 and see what Solomon's done here. This is incredibly clever. Of course, he is wise, so it makes sense that it would be. So let's start in chapter 3, verse 1. And this is probably the most famous section of the book of Ecclesiastes, which makes it harder to preach on because everybody already knows what it means. Maybe. You follow what I'm saying? So let's just see what we can do. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, 
and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And when you read that, what Solomon is getting at is everything changes, is the point. You're in a season, for better or for worse. Hey, things are great for now. Things are bad. Well, this too shall pass. But no matter how you look at it, there's a season. There's a time. There's a part that's maybe the fun part. Then there's a part that's the not-so-fun part. There's a time when things go well, but the time where things go poorly is coming. There's no way to look at this where it's always the same season. I mean, wouldn't you love for it to be the, either the first few weeks of fall or the first few weeks of spring year-round? I mean, that would be amazing, but we'd probably get sick of it. You know my favorite season? In any given season during the year, from winter to spring to summer to fall, at any point I can tell you my favorite season is the next one. <laughs> I just can't wait for the next season. Because at first it's exciting and it's new, but it gets old. And now I'm ready for the next season. Life was much like this, if you think about it. I loved being a kid, but by the time I was an adult and old enough to drive, I was ready for that season. A few thousand errands and running to the grocery store for my mom later, I was tired of driving. You know, it's not as fun as it could have been. And then got to go to college, a new season. Oh, man, it's a great season. It was fun. And then when college was over, my last year, it's like, you know what, I'm done with this. It's, it went from the funnest time of life to I can't wait to to move on. And then the next season, I got married. That's the funnest thing ever. Then the honeymoon stage ends. You know how that goes? And it's like, we're going to have kids. This is wonderful. Then your first kid comes, you're like, oh, man. Guys, that's a season. <laughs> that's a season. And, and I emphasize that season most of all right now, I think, because I'm finally, like, past the newborn, like, in toddler season. I have no diapers in my I keep saying, I feel like every sermon in the last three weeks, I've emphasized that there's no diapers in my house. And you just have no idea how nice this season is. But I know what's going to happen is in a few years, I'm going to be so glad when this season is over. And then I'm going to be so glad when that season's over. I mean, but think about whatever you're doing in life. There's just a season to it. it. It constantly changes. It's always in flux. We have a sign somewhere in the church that says everything is subject to change. And that's the reality is, is things change all the time, whether we choose to. Like in our house, we're going to rearrange the furniture every six months or sooner. It's just like, like we're trying to be biblical, you know, in that sense and let there be a season for everything. And okay, just kidding. We just change things all the time. But there's a flux in everything. Some of that we choose, some of it we don't. It just happens to us. All right, so let's dive into the next paragraph and see how Solomon gives commentary on this idea of there being a season for everything. So what gain has the worker from his toil? This is verse 9. I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, that's fascinating. You go through seasons of life. I enjoyed having a baby. I also enjoy not having babies anymore. But it was beautiful when my first child was born. It was beautiful when the next two were born as well. But, you know, the season was a little different. But there's a beauty to the season. And we, we said, well, is there a beauty to the bad seasons? 
Well, the reality is yes. Yes, there is a beauty to the bad seasons. I don't know. Do you all ever daydream about, you know, pressing an easy button in life? Maybe not a literal button, but you're like, man, if I could just snap my fingers and make blank and blank blank happen, you know, it's like if I just had a magic wand that could fix it. Or or just all of a sudden I inherited a billion dollars from some family member and I could do anything I want. Anybody, you do that sort of scenario and you start thinking through. So for me, it's almost always either ways we could do something at the church or ways I could change something at the farm. That's like 99% of all of my daydreams have to do with those two. And I think about it, the house and the farm, like, and if I could just sign my fingers and make it exactly what I want it to be today, because I don't always like having to work on everything, and I always have another project and another project. I feel like there's always another project on my list, but the reality is, part of the reason I enjoy my life so much, part of the reason I enjoy my farm so much, are those projects. It is the labor. I love the inside of my house because I put that wood up there. I love it because I have the experience of it. It was a delight to me after the fact. There were days I was like, I'm just ready for this to end and be over. There's seasons of life and ministry that have been miserable, terrible even. See the, the ugliness of people, the backstabbing of people. But, I mean, I'm where I am today. I'm who I am today because of those experiences. I wouldn't want to be deprived of that. I used to daydream about going back to college and starting all over. Like, what if I just redid all of this and I wouldn't have to jump through some of those hoops? But I immediately, I, I can't even daydream on that anymore because it's, I would lose everything I have now. And I couldn't do that. I wouldn't be willing to do that. The saddest movie I've ever seen was that Nicolas Cage movie, The Family Man. Have you all seen that movie? Where at the very end, like that whole life he lives with the kids really didn't happen and doesn't exist. I mean, that, so I just totally ruined the movie if, if you haven't seen it. But uh, it's like, like I couldn't enjoy. They, they get together in the end. I'm like, it doesn't matter that all, all of that was fake. You know? It's like they can't do it. <laughs> because everything's beautiful in a season. Now, let's keep going. The next part of this phrase is fascinating. So he's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he, this is God, has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, we could unpack that in a lot of different ways, and I want us to be careful not to overread this verse, um, but Solomon is saying that us as people have this ability or this desire, maybe, to see the bigger picture and to participate even in the bigger picture. There's a sense in which Solomon's emphasizing our acknowledgement of time. I mean, time doesn't seem like that big a deal in regular life, but you actually think about and through time and experience almost every moment of every day. I didn't even use the word moment. There we go. There's progression of time. So let's fill in the first blank in the outline. I know we're first blank and uh, <laughs> we're near the end, but God gave us the gift of time in his work of creation. Now, this is going to be very interesting as we go forward. God does not exist in time. Now, anybody like super nerdy on the physics side of the spectrum, you may know that space and time are different attributes of the same thing. So that's very significant to know. Space and time are different. It's like if you measure a cube, you have the the length, the height, and the width. Well, Time is one of the measurements of space. 
In fact, in that world, we call it space-time. You ever heard that space-time? Well, it's, that's not it's fiction. This is, this is real. That's why, you know, if you get into special relativity and Einstein and all that stuff, really interesting. Like, if you compress space, it affects time. And you spread out time, it affects, you know, it just, it all interrelates. All of that to say, you don't actually have to care about that. I, I find it interesting, but you don't have to. But the point is, time is literally part of creation. And is God part of creation? No. God is not in time. Time is something he made in this. We get to see and we get to experience. Now, I say it's a gift. Let's keep going and see how this works. He says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So we have to have perspective in order to do this. Now follow through. There's, there's a positive and a negative way we can think about time. We have the ability to see cause and effect. We have the ability to step back and have perspective on something. You ever just, in the heat of the moment, made bad decisions and you have to back up, kind of take a bigger view of what's going on here, recognize, okay, part of that argument was too much caffeine, part of that argument was low blood sugar, part of that argument was no sleep. You know what I'm talking about? Perspective gives us an ability to, to re-gauge, reanalyze a scenario. And so we think about that in all of life. That time is what allows us to give meaning to something. We know that I'm not just tilling dirt. I'm tilling dirt because I'm going to put a seed in it. And after the seed's in it, I'm not just pouring water on the ground. I'm pouring water on the ground because a plant is going to grow. And I'm not just watering this plant and pulling the weeds out around this plant. I'm doing all of that because this plant is going to provide fruit or at the very least beauty to my garden. We can connect cause and effect. We can see purpose. We can have meaning in everything. And that's why a lot of us really struggle with meaningless work, meaningless repetition. Like when you have children and you clean your house. It's like this is meaningless because it's just going to be dirty again. Okay, I have to say that in jest. But we connect things to purpose. We can only do that because God's given us the gift of time. So time gives us the ability to find value and meaning in all things. Now, when we do that, we can also do that in a negative way. When we look at this and we start to expect things to work out well, this is where we get pessimistic. Well, I know if I plant this garden, it might not grow. I plant this garden... I planted a whole thing of corn one time, and it turns out there were deer coming through the property, and anybody knows what happens to corn if there's deer present. They don't let it grow. They'll let it grow that tall. Anything past that, they love the taste. They're never going to let it grow up to be full-size corn. They're going to eat it. We start looking at time, we know that things don't last. You buy a new car, and how long is it a new car? Until you drive it off the lot, Right? not a new car anymore. Get a new iPhone. Man, that's, that's, I'm a sucker for that. I'm not going to lie. I get the new iPhone. I'm like, oh, man, that's the best phone on the market. And then six months later, iPhone's like, here's another one. Oh, iPhone's not good anymore. So the time, the same time that allows me to find meaning and value in life can also be the burden itself. Technically, I skipped one. So when measured too short of a scale, time can be a burden. But in all of this, I want you to see how this comes together. So let's, let's finish up the paragraph. It says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. What well, has to, though, right? Because he's not operating in time. 
He's operating on the outside of time. So anything he does has to be forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. Now, this is glorious if you let that sink in. So God has a plan. Can that plan change? It would require him to be in time for that plan to change. It can be added to. It can be subtracted from. Nothing can be molded or shaped concerning this plan of God. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So all of this is just a poetic way of saying God is not living day to day in our time. He's bigger. He's outside of it. And he has set it in stone. He's got a plan. Now, if he's got a plan, now let that sink in. Then whatever season of life I'm in has a start and a stop point. And the next season has already been determined. So one of the things time allows us to do, the seasons of life allows us to do, is to trust God. Your third blank there. The seasons of life give us the ability to trust God. You know, it's illustrated so many times as a parent. Your kids want to know, is it time for blank yet? They're just having to trust you. Maybe they don't trust you is why they're asking. I know Pax will be real particular. I was like, I'll do it in a minute. He'll be like, last time when you said it in a minute, you forgot. And I'm like, oh, you little. Okay. Okay, you're right. All right. All right. Fortunately, we don't have that option with God. He doesn't forget. His plan is sovereign. It's absolute. It's immovable. It's unchangeable. It's fancy term. His, his plan is immutable. And so we can trust in him. For that, now let's finish this last paragraph. See how this goes. So we're, we're working towards that negative spot. This is why we, we started at the really bottom before we came back here. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Okay, here's the idea. Solomon's really hitting at this already in the book. It'll be clearer as we, go, as we go through. But there is a time, you know, we said a time to be born, a time to die, a time to heal, a time to kill. There is a time to fix it all. There is a time to redeem it. There is a time to rest in the completed work of God. There's a sense in which retirement is coming. There is a time when God is going to come, He's going to judge the world, and He's going to set things Right, we can trust Him in this. It is part of His timeline. There's a time for every matter, especially judgment and every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. So God is testing you to show you that you're just an animal. Now that's, usually in a Christian circle, that's a negative thing to say. Are you just an animal? Like, no, I'm, I'm a human created in God's image. Yeah, but are you more like creation or are you more like God? That's not a trick question. <laughs> we're, we're on, we have more in common with a cow than we do God. Yeah, yet we're the pinnacle of creation. We're the, we're the high point. We are in God's image, but you are a beast. You're an animal. In fact, your DNA is very similar to that of other creatures. We have way more in common with the world. This is by God's design to remind us that we are not God, never will be. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts 
is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. I don't have any sheep on my property that'll live forever, any goats that'll live forever, any pigs that'll live forever. I don't have any humans. They're going to live forever. We're going to die. We're just like them in that way. They all have the same breath. The man has no advantage over the beast, for all this is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Now that's a quotation from where? That's Genesis. For dust you are from God's mouth, and to dust you shall return. That's what happens to the human body. That's what happens to all the other animals as well. And then there's a striking question in 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Now, we do know. We have a lot more Bible than this verse. We do know that, but, I mean, just from a localized perspective, when a person dies, we do have this visual imagery. What, what happens to the spirit? It happens in movies all the time. It, it rises up. And goes to be with the Lord. Now, that's probably not that far from reality. We have a lot of texts throughout the scriptures that say that. But do you see that happen when you're in the room? Uh, Probably not. He's saying, so we can't even see the spirit going up, let alone a dog spirit going down. Now, interesting assumption there. We won't get into dogs going to heaven. That's a question for another day, and I'll totally lose everybody if we do. Instead, let's wrap this up. Um, Because y'all will hate me. So verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Here's the, the idea. You have the perspective of the little sliver of time you have been given. You need to enjoy that moment. So there's seasons in life. But the reality is, you're a very short season in the bigger scheme of things. It's not that long. Enjoy what you have. Now, let me give you this final one. This is really what it all boils down to. And really, most of the book is coming down to this idea. The key to living in and enjoying the seasons of life is humility. Now, I mean humility in a very specific way here. We humble ourselves before the God of the universe. The way he's going to say it at the end of the book is the conclusion of the matter is to fear God and keep His commandments. So the key to enjoying the seasons of life is to humble yourself to that season. This is my lot in life. This is my season God has me in. I'm going to enjoy it to the best of my ability now in fear of His name. Try to glorify His name however He has equipped me to do so. For this is man's all. This is our all even today.